our call to worship this morning is found in the Old Testament in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's page 840. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all my people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Amen. Today's gospel reading will be found on John 14, 6 through 9. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe me? I, I am the Father. Say, the words I say, I do not speak to organize. Rather, it works the Father living in me, who is doing the work. Thank you. Amen. Our New Testament reading will be found Acts 2, 22 through 41. People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man created by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, but put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of my dead. You will not, lay, you will not let your holy one see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with your joy presence. Brothers and sisters, we all know that this portrait's David died and was buried in his tomb to hear to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one on his descendants on his throne. Seeing that was to come to spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witness of that fact. Exalted in the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what we now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent, baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Thank you, readers. We're going to get to all of those texts in just a bit. It's been uh, quite a week. I'm going to bring you up to speed on a couple of things. We heard this week uh, Brennan's traveling a week from Sunday, the 25th. He'll arrive the 27th. (laughs) It takes two days to get to Malawi, so not a casual trip. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, We're scrambling now to launch him, and so that's an exciting piece. Uh, Also this week, uh, I'm sad to announce that my 40s are fleeting quickly. Um, Not a lot of the 40s left. I don't know what to say to that. I'm just stunned, actually. Um, And uh, it hasn't affected me at all, except that I can't remember uh, anything now. so, uh, no, I'm, I'm pulling it. I, I want to know if you uh, read my letter on the left side of the bulletin. Anybody here take a gander at that? Cool. Well, it was also a great week in the sense that there were some things I got to engage that were powerful and meaningful. And one of them was one of my favorite pieces of music, the Verdi Requiem. And it never ceases to amaze me how the good news travels through ancient medium into places unsuspecting. Um, Dudamel may come from a Catholic country. I don't know him to be a particularly religious person. The Los Angeles Philharmonic has many people of faith, different faiths represented, I assume, but is not particularly uh, religious or religiously affiliated of its own accord. The Hollywood Bowl is a completely secular venue. And Verdi himself was not a man of faith, but he had a Latin text to work with, and it was a beautiful text, one that captured both the violence of judgment and destruction and the beauty of grace and forgiveness. And the text uh, manages to come through even in operatic form. And so here in this beautiful place, the Hollywood Bowl, on a Thursday night with thousands of people gathered and public television there to film it for one of their great performances series, I watched people moved to the point of tears by music and by word because it was translated for them on the screen. Dudamel himself is a genius. If you ever, Even if you're not an appreciator of classical music, it would be worth your time as a life event just to be able to say, I did it. To go sometime to a concert at the Bowl or Walt Disney Concert Hall that he is conducting and see his mastery at work. He's a very unique conductor, and I've seen hundreds. Um, And this particular concert was very unique because, as I'm sure uh, if you're familiar with the genre at all, these are huge orchestras and a double choir, the master chorale was there. And he conducted it as if he was conducting a chamber group or an ensemble group, no baton, very, very small. 
and he knew the text, the Latin text by memory. He never uses music. It's just unbelievable to see. So the whole thing's a spiritual experience even without the text and the glorious music. It's just amazing to see this stuff happen. And then to watch what happens through the text with the audience. I know I've described it in my writing there, but he got to the end of the piece and he held. Now, conductors often do this for dramatic effect, but I wish you could have seen his face. It was on the Megatron on both sides of the, uh, of the bowl there. And his face was rapturous. He was completely taken with what he had heard, what he had produced with the lyric, with the sound. And he couldn't let it go. I've heard conductors hold a pose for a couple of seconds for dramatic effect and then release it and the audience bursts into applause. He held it for more like 45 seconds. It looked like he was moved. And when he put his hands down, the congregation, congregation, listen to me, <laughs> the congregation did not applaud, but in stunned silence, remained for a few seconds more until slowly it started and gathered and built momentum. And I love it when the good news, the gospel gets told in unlikely ways, in unlikely places, with an unlikely audience. Have you seen that happen? Have you been witness to the Spirit's movement in a place that you didn't expect to see Him show up? I hope you have. I hope you've experienced that. It's marvelous to behold. Marvelous to behold. We're talking about, today, logos, or logos, however you want to say that, word. We're talking about the essence now of the gospel, but with a twist. We're talking about this in the framework of rhetorical proofs. So I know many of you have been here with me every week. Forgive my reiterations of these things because I'm not trying to drive you crazy or tell you what you already know or bore you. But for the sake of those who have not been with us, I would like to recap very quickly what we've been doing in series. This, since I got back from my sabbatical in May, we have been talking about the, the, the following questions. Is the story of Jesus as embedded in the story of God and humanity still a meaningful story? Is it still a relevant story? And if it's meaningful and if it's relevant, how do we build our lives around this story? And are we willing to do so? And so we've been exploring that. We've talked about uh, God the Father and the way he's imaged himself and the way in which uh, this story is revealed in him and the Son and the Spirit. We've talked about the church. We've talked about a lot of different things, and more recently about witness. I think it was three or four weeks ago I confessed that witness, I believe, actually requires word. 
There's that famous quote wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that goes, we will preach the gospel with every means possible, and if necessary, we'll use words. Have you heard that quote? Not St. Francis, but a good quote. I'm afraid we have to use words. I'm afraid it's part and parcel of everything that goes with our bearing witness to this story that we're willing to build our lives around. And so a couple of weeks ago, I introduced the idea of of rhetoric and the way that affected biblical writers. You see, in classical times, they studied three, maybe four subjects. The trivium, the quadrivium, depends on the school. And one of the essential subjects of classical learning was rhetoric. And there were three proofs offered in rhetoric. The first proof, ethos or ethos. Second proof, pathos or pathos. The third one, logos or logos, however you want to pronounce those. I gave you both the Koine Greek and the kind of contemporary English pronunciations there. Ethos has to do with character. Who are we? And if you read scripture, you've run into this so many times and not known probably, as I haven't, what you were running into. Paul starts his letters. I, Paul, called by Jesus Christ to be an apostle to the church. And, you know, he's very clear about his introduction and who he is and where he's authorized from and why he's doing what he's done. He's very quick to pull out the list of places he's been beaten, stranded, uh, you know, bitten by snakes, whatever. He's very clear about the way in which his character and his experience backs up his story and contributes to it. And in the mind of an ancient, this wasn't bragging. This was simply a very important part of telling the story. And so I, I, I tried to communicate to all of you that your character is part of the story. If you're going to build your life around the story of Jesus Christ, your character and your witness has to go beyond word. It has to be the essence of who you are and what you take. Your experience has to reflect the value that you say you put on the story of Jesus. Then we moved to pathos last week, and this is where we get the word empathy. So we're familiar with the root of this, and it has to do with emotion. Now, when we hear a story with some emotional content or appeal, we're we're drawn in, aren't we? Are we not? We connect to the emotion of a story. We connect to a drama. We're pulled into something, which is what was happening Thursday night at the bowl. People heard a story they connected to and were drawn into emotionally. They heard it in a way we don't typically tell stories, but they heard it in story form nonetheless. And so when we talk about pathos, we're talking about Connecting to the heart. Now, last week I talked about this in terms of not just emotion, because that has, uh, we all know that we can be misled by emotion. We all know that our own emotions do not tell the truth about life or circumstance. That we can be angry over something, having misunderstood something, and not be dealing with reality at all, but only a perception that's false about reality. So we've grown up and trained ourselves to be careful about the way in which we deal with emotion purely. But the deeper part of this is that the seat of emotion in ancient times was the heart. And connecting to the heart was a way of connecting to a certainty, a veracity, a truth. That is to say, something you knew deeply, intuitively to be true. 
that you emotionally connected with as truth. And so in our reading today, we actually heard one of those instances in Acts chapter 2. The, the audience listening to Peter is pierced through their heart, the text says. They realize the truth. And the heart is mentioned because it's not just a logical proof that they accepted. It wasn't just the head that spoke to them. It was something that came to them in a way that they could emotionally connect to it, that they knew intuitively, deeply, personally was true. So this week, the third proof we're talking about Lagos itself, the power of the argument, the word, the story. And so the question for today is, is your gospel, is your gospel an attractive one? Is it a reflective one? Does it, does it do justice to the story of Jesus as embedded in the story of God and humanity? Is your gospel really good news? So just to review the texts that have been read to you already, and then I just have a couple of more I'll end with, I want to look at Joel really quickly in light of the gospel and in light of the word. We've read this passage so many times, it's cited as part of that which will be the fulfillment that draws us to the end of time. And I think historically for Adventists, the idea that the world was coming to an end and God would be coming um, was really looked forward to. I don't know how much our, our people still look forward. I think anticipation can be a very good thing. But in my childhood, it was distorted a bit, and maybe in some of yours, because in my childhood, the end of the world part was emphasized far more than the redemption that was drawing nigh. The end of the world was emphasized, and preparedness for the end of the world was emphasized far more than the fact that Jesus was coming, far more than the fact that we were going to see our God and live with him forever and be with him forever. So somewhere the good news got truncated in something that didn't feel like good news. Disaster and famine and war and persecution and death and dying and tragedy and disease and plague and the end of everything that we as humans have built culturally and socially, the end of everything we've built physically, the death of our cities and our structures and our race. And somehow, all of that became the focus. But as we think about the approaching day of the Lord and His coming, one of the things that is actually probably got multiple fulfillments, but that Joel sees, is that the Spirit of God is to be poured out. Prophecy will take place. Wonders in heaven and earth will be revealed. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I highlight those three things because if you were telling the gospel story, which one of those would you emphasize? Would you emphasize the coming of the Spirit and prophecy? Would you emphasize the historical fulfillment of the darkening of the sun or the reddening of the moon or the movement in the heavens? Would you emphasize the apocalyptic aspects of Joel 2? Or would your gospel focus on this text, 32? And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the survivors or the remnant whom the Lord calls. Where's the loci of your gospel? Where is your good news centered? John 14 I read because it was the words of Christ. John 14, 6b. That's just to say not the very first words there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know the Father as well. The disciples question this. They're not listening. There's a disconnect still. They haven't put it together. And Jesus entreats them in nine, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Almost hurt. Or perhaps angry. But in this time of being with the disciples, the revelation hasn't been made clear. Does your gospel center around a Jesus embedded in the story of God and humanity who reveals a loving Father? who with the Son planned for your redemption, who with the Son carried out that plan, who with the Son longs to see you, longs to be with you in community, longs to draw you to himself? Is your gospel a reflection of that kind of God? I wonder. I've put it there in the hopes that it does. Acts chapter 2. This is Pentecost. The Holy Spirit, as we talked about several weeks back, perhaps uh, five or six weeks back when we were talking about the Spirit imaged. Yes, tongues have come down, appearing as flames of fire upon the disciples. They've started to speak, all gathered actually in the upper room. They've started to speak in languages they don't know. People from all corners of the earth are hearing the gospel in their own tongue. And the spin that the Pharisees and Sadducees are putting on things is that the disciples are drunk. They're just mumbling. They're just rambling and mumbo-jumbo. And while we would all want to admit that sometimes foreign languages do sound like mumbo-jumbo to us, and we would want to make sounds that to our ears sound similar to those, this isn't what was going on. Peter, who's now going to emerge as one of the great leaders of the early church, despite his failures, despite his denial, despite his tempestuousness, despite his egotism, Despite his desire for control, Peter is going to emerge as one of the great leaders of the church there in Jerusalem. And he stands up and offers word, logos. He stands up and gives a testimony about what's going on. A testimony designed to convict. First, there's character, and while he's a follower of Jesus, which is a plus, He's short on the ethos side, I think we would want to say, at this point in his journey. 
but he's very good and strong on the pathos side. He's going to appeal to the heart, and he's going to do so effectively, and the word itself is going to be compelling because it's going to make sense to the audience he's speaking to. In Acts 2.22, we'll start with that. He says, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. That's a pointed accusation. You did it. Not the Romans. You did it. But God raised him from the dead. Oh, by now, the Sadducees are falling apart. They do not believe in resurrection. This is uh, a big bomb dropped right on them. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Death couldn't hold Jesus. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. Have you ever put the connection together? Heart being glad, your tongue rejoicing, and your body feeling good about it? Praise and worship and positivity affect our health and our lives. I'm going to take a quick aside here. We know that in the Bible Belt of the United States, faith is very strong. We also know the diet is terrible. They eat about 20 million milligrams of salt a day. They can't make a vegetable that's raw. It has to be cooked to death and preferably with bacon. And they eat more fat and are more obese than any people on earth. It, it, it's just, they should not live past 45, any of them. The Bible belt should be the death belt. You should go there and expect a lifespan of 45 to 55 years, everybody dying of coronary artery disease, heart disease, cancer, something in there. And these people live average lifespans or longer. Why? Are they genetically superior? They live longer lifespans because, not longer than average by much at all. They, they, they kind of get there, barely, okay? But that's a miracle. That's like, that's like a person living to 200 who practiced good health habits. For one of them to get to 75 is like a very healthy person getting to 200. I mean, it's just a miracle, okay? So they get to this, this kind of average to old age because they're happy. They're happy. Their minds and their tongues praise God, and it brings health and vitality to their bodies. That's the aside. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body also will live in hope. Because you have not abandoned me, or you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. 
To be with God is to be with life, in life. And David knew it. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. Where Peter was saying this, he could probably point to David's tomb. And his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor his body to see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witness of this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Quoting the prophets, Peter goes on, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, here it is, pathos, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what are we to do? Peter replied, repent, turn your life around, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive this same gift of God's spirit. The Holy Spirit, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for generations to come, for all whom the Lord will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Word. Word. What's your gospel? What's your character? What's your story? And does it hold together? Is it good news? Is it good news? I want to point you to a couple of texts for further reflection. 2 Corinthians, we'll get to in just a minute, but I'd like you to turn to Colossians, Colossians 2. The word that I'm interested in that these two passages speaks to his reconciliation, which is what Peter was just describing. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and hold your finger there and go over then to Colossians. And I think we're looking at, uh, find it here very quickly. Uh, we're looking at Colossians 1. 2021 and on. Have you found it? Colossians 1, 21 and on? 
Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And that is the gospel of Christ's reconciliation. And if you turn to 2 Corinthians 5, 11 and following, and I particularly would like to focus on verses a little further down. Let's start with 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we're all convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who, have, who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, has lived and died in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself and not in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We, therefore, are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made himself who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is that good news? I think that's the gospel. For me, I think that caps, encapsulates it very nicely. For me, the God who made me, called me out on my sin, entered my world to redeem me and to teach me and to show me what love was all about, that self-sacrificing love of God that we see in Christ who reconciled me to the Father, who invites me to die to myself and to live in him and to be resurrected with him and participate in his resurrection now and for all ages to come. The same Christ whose Father, who our God, reconciled the world to himself in his Son, desiring that no one be lost, but leaving us with choice, making it your decision making it mine and inviting us to live life more abundantly and fully in the presence of the Spirit through His power from now until the end of time, focusing not on the trial and tribulation ahead, for we set all of that apart for the glory of Christ, but focusing on what it will mean to be in His presence forever. That, to me, is the gospel. That's good news. I, I, can, I can work with that. And I hope you can, too.
Is your gospel good news? I hope so. And as I finish this little series on the rhetorical proofs, character, appeal to emotion, connection with heart, soul, integration, if you will, and word, how what we say needs to have power and conviction, yes, but it needs to have a logic to it, needs to make some sense. It needs to speak to the people we're speaking to. It needs to be, above all, good news. The world has not a huge shortage of Christians. There are almost two billion of us. But the world does have a shortage of good news. And what that tells me is that the Christian world isn't yet embracing the gift they've been given. Let's not let that be us. Amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel that he so powerfully brought be with you this week and permeate and shape your lives that we might all say and do and live and be that gospel. Amen.